Take the good news, put it before the eyes and ears of fallen man, and let it do its own good work. It's capable of changing hearts irrespective of anything that you might add to it. The gospel doesn't need our defense. It just needs our preaching. The gospel is not toothless, and the gospel is not weak. Throughout Scripture, we see that the gospel is called the power of God unto salvation, and we need to treat it that way as a lion to be let out, not as something to hide or subjugate beneath other things. That will be our focus in today's sermon from Acts 5. I don't think that the devil, the demon world, what have you, I don't think they fear the structure of the church. I don't think they fear the buildings, no matter how large they might be. I don't think they fear the stained glass, the crosses out front. I don't think the devil's worried in the least of the size and scope of our buildings. Now, by extension, I also don't think the devil cares too much about our programs. Programs can be good, activities can be wonderful, but I really don't think that those things are a threat to him. I also don't think that the devil's threatened too much by the size of the church, no matter how big or how small it is, even if it should be 10,000 members large. I don't think any of that stuff really impresses him all that much. So what does impress him? Or more to the point, what causes the devil to tremble in his boots? What does he fear if he fears anything? Well, he fears the exact same thing that the high priest feared here in today's text. The devil fears the open, unvarnished, unequivocal teaching, preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would he be concerned about that? Well, here's the reason why. Because he knows that therein lies the power. There's all manner of things we do as a church, and we do a lot of things pretty well. There's all manner of programs that we have and activities and the like. However, a church that takes this book, opens it up, says, Thus saith the Lord, preaches the full counsel of Christ, points people to a risen, resurrected Savior, that, I think, is of great concern. And again, we know it because we can see how the high priest and those who murdered Jesus, we can see how they were impacted, not necessarily by activities and programs and things that the apostles and disciples were doing, but rather singularly by when they preached, by when they taught, by when they stood in a public setting and pointed people to Jesus. In today's text, the high priest is going to confront Christ's disciples, as we'll see. And he's going to confront them in an interesting way, because initially he's going to say something that to him is a giant rebuke, but to them would have been seen as a great compliment. Specifically, he's going to look them in the eyes and say, you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? You... By virtue of preaching and teaching what you're preaching and teaching, you are filling the city. You're filling Jerusalem with your doctrine. If you're Peter there, what would you have said? Amen. <laughs> that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. This was a tremendous compliment. You see, there was something about what they were saying that was more antagonistic to the high priest and to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the like. There's something that they were doing that was more antagonistic than anything else, and that was opening up their mouths and filling the city with their doctrine, with what they were saying, with what they were teaching, with what they were preaching. That was far more troublesome than anything else they were doing. And what was especially troublesome to the hearts of the Pharisees and the high priest was that nothing seemed to stop it. These guys, they had already tried to put their clamps down on this stuff. The high priest and the others had already tried to kind of box in this new group, this new religious viewpoint that was sprouting up in their midst. They had tried everything to stop it or to slow it down. However, nothing had worked. 
Nothing had worked. The priests had arrested the disciples. They'd beaten them. They'd thrown them into prison. They'd driven many from the city. They'd forbade the teaching of the gospel, and yet it was still growing. Yet it was still impacting the city and leavening it in a way that nothing else would. If you picture a water hitting just a pile of gravel, what happens? Does the gravel stop the water? Not at all. The water continues to permeate. goes right through. That's what was happening. No matter what obstructions were placed in front of this living water, it was just breaking right through, going in and around beside these rocks. And that's what made these priests and others angry. All right, let's look at how the gospel is doing this. Let's look at verses 17 through 18, and then I'll work our way through the balance of the text. Verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, along with all those who were with him, which is the sect of these Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid hands on the apostles, and they put them in the common prison. All right, again, let's set the stage. At this point in the New Testament, Jesus has arisen. He has been crucified. He has been resurrected. He spent time for 40 days with the disciples. He was seen by countless eyewitnesses. Then he goes up, and he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1. Now, when Jesus left, he brought his disciples together ahead of time. He says, all right, guys, when I go, I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. And at that point, you're going to be empowered to take the gospel to the far reaches of the earth. In fact, that's what I want you to do. We call this the Great Commission. He tells them to make disciples, baptize disciples across the nation. So that was their objective, and that's what they were doing. If you were to read Acts 1 through 4, just those four chapters, you would see the disciples were doing what Christ had told them to do. The captain of their salvation had given the directions, and they were fulfilling it. And guess what? It was working. It was working in an incredible fashion. It didn't take a ton of infrastructure. What it took is a willingness to do what Jesus had said, to go and teach and preach about a crucified and risen Christ. And as you see in Acts 2 and and the end of Acts 4, you see that multitudes were being saved. Thousands in a day were coming to know Jesus. Why? Because they're introducing the people to Jesus. They're introducing the people to Jesus by preaching and teaching about who he is and what he had done. Now for them... This is good news. If you're an apostle, you're like, wow, you were worried that when Jesus left, everything would fall apart. And he said, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. And he basically told him, you got this. And I'm going to equip you. I'm going to send you a helper. And it's all going to work out. Well, in the first few chapters, we see that it was working out. And they're feeling stronger each day. They're getting stronger, more convicted, and more bold. Far more bold than they were in the past. Remember, Peter's the one who denied Jesus three times. And by the time we get here to Acts 5, he's just standing up telling the high priest, you're a murderer. His fear is gone. So they're stronger. And they're delivering the gospel with strength, with confidence, and with power. But that was offending the people who already had the power. If you say something with conviction and boldness... Even if it's true, what you'll find is that those who are impacted by what you're saying might rebel against or reject it or reject you. Well, that's what happened here. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the high priests, really all the religious elite said, no, 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 no. Those dudes, those guys, they were fishermen like last week. Those guys, we know them. They're untrained. They haven't done the things that we did. Look, they have no tall pointy hats. They don't got the robes. Who are these guys? And yet, what they're doing seems to be working. They're opening their mouth, and people are flocking to them. This made them indignant, which is what we see in these verses. They're filled with indignation. And indignation is what happens when our pride is impacted. And that's what was happening here. And so, the question is, well, what are they going to do about it? 
They really don't like these guys. They really want to deal with these guys, so what are they going to do? Well, they did what tyrants always do. They take their enemy, and they throw them in prison. They say, if I can't stop up your mouth, I'll stop up you and put you in a place where your words have no impact. So that's what they attempted to do, throw them into prison. But as we're going to see, it's going to be a short stay. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, now go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. All right. At night, you can picture the scene, they've been thrown into prison. It's the middle of the night, and during the night, an angel comes and opens the doors and tells them, you know what, the same thing that you were doing before, you keep on doing it. You go right back, and you go back and teaching and preaching. Now let me ask you, I guess, a thinking question here. Why an angel? Why an angel? You see, usually in life, you might have had all manner of miracles go on in your life, and you would never know it. Why? Because God uses ordinary means, or what we call secondary means, to accomplish his ends. Think about it. It could have been a deal where they're in prison and the jailer's walking on by and he's a little clumsy and his keys fall out of his pocket and they go, ha, and they grab the keys and they unlock the door and they go out, right? That would have been a more ordinary explanation. However, here we see an angel is utilized. Why did God choose to send an angel in this particular case rather than having some ordinary explanation for how they could have been free. Well, there's more than one way to answer that. But having Peter and the others released through clearly miraculous means was meant to convey to all the watching eyes of Jerusalem that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, and the others, they were fighting against God and not men. You see this? He sends an angel to unlock the door, open them up, to send them out, to go back to what they were doing, leaving nothing but a miraculous explanation for what had happened. And that was God's intention because he wanted to send the message. These guys are mine. I set them free. And I sent them back to do what they were doing before. The fact they're free in this miraculous fashion should have been instructive to anyone who was paying attention. In fact, any time in the Bible where God chooses to use supernatural means, it really, it really should be instructive to anyone who's watching. Pharaoh should have learned the lesson by the time the frogs rolled around or the lice or the hailstones or what have you, right? He was clearly fighting against God and not man. Anytime God uses some supernatural agency to manifest his will, it should be an eye-opener to anyone who's watching. Now, with that said, why did the angel then tell the apostles that, all right, now that you've gone out, I want you to go back doing what you were doing before. Why didn't he tell them, all right, guys, you're free. Let's keep your voices down. You're free. Now you sneak out. Use the back alley. Go to the left, down the hallway, out into the street, hide by the shrubs, go over to the wall. Why didn't he tell them to kind of slink back or sneak back to their houses or to escape from Jerusalem? Why didn't he tell them to do something like that? Well, because that wasn't the objective. The people needed to hear the very words that the apostles had been trained to speak. And so the angel says, no, you're not going back to your house You're going to open these doors, or I'm going to open the doors for you, and you're going to go right out, and you're going to go back to the temple, and you're going to speak to the people all the words of this life. Notice it's not selective. It's not some of the words. It's not a ministry where you say only those things that they can hear or are willing to listen to or won't kill you for. Rather, speak all the words of 
this life. Irrespective of the danger, preach the word. Irrespective of what the high priest has said, do what's right. Irrespective of what any man has told you, follow God. All right, let's look at verses 21 through 24. Now when they heard that, so when they were given this instruction, they entered the temple early in the morning and they taught. But the high priest and those with him came and they called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and then they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and they reported saying, indeed, we found the prison was shut securely and the guards were standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. All right. The sun arose that next morning. The apostles went right back to the temple to do the same thing they had been doing before they were arrested. Now, at this point, however... The high priest and his council, they don't know about it. If you're the high priest, basically your day started off like this. You wake up, and you get out of bed, and you get your high priestly cup of coffee or whatever they drank in those days, and, and you sit there and you say, today is going to be a good day. And you put on your finer and your robes and your tall pointy hat, and you go on down and you meet with all the other elders that are all called together, and you're all feeling pretty good, right? Why? Because this is the day you're going to deal with those enemies. You're going to deal with those who have been a burn in your saddle. You're going to deal with those who have cast aside the faith of thousands in the city. You're going to deal with them once and for all. Today is going to be a good day if you're the high priest. However, verse 22, we see that a problem arises. And the problem is that when the men who were sent to go to the prison got to the prison... They found the prison in all respects to be just as it should be. The doors were secured and locked and such, and there was guards who were stationed who hadn't left their post, and that was all well and good. But what was bad was that the prisoners were gone. And there was no explanation for how this could be so. Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened the doors, we found no one inside. Now, what I like is the end of verse 24. The high priest, he's no longer sipping on his hot, tasty coffee or whatever he had. He's no longer so smug. In fact, verse 24 says that the high priest and the others, they began to wonder what the outcome of these things might be. I'll bet they did. I'll bet they did wonder. I bet they were confused and perplexed and wondering what's, what's going to happen. Well, they didn't have to wait very long. In verse 25, someone comes in rushes on in breathlessly declares guys i know where they're at i know where the prisoners are at verse 25 one came and told them and said look the men who you put in prison they're now standing back in the temple and they're teaching the people now that's not usually the way jailbreaks go I haven't been part of one, but I've seen enough movies, and I know that, that the people, they escape from jail, they slink out in the night, and they hitch on the horses that have been set for them, and then they, they ride out of town as fast as they can go, and then the posse will chase them and the like. That's what a jailbreak looks like, but not in this case. These guys went right back, doing the same thing that they had been in prison for just a day earlier, testifying to a crucified and risen Christ. All right, let's see what happens next as we look at verses 26 and 27. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. 
are in their rage and their frustration. The Jewish leaders go, all right, you, you, and you, you go get them. You go get these guys, bring them back from the temple. Now, the guys who went, they were following orders, but they knew that this was dangerous. It was dangerous because the people had been galvanized. The people had been galvanized, and they were worried that if they were to harm these guys or assault them, then they, in turn, might be harmed or assaulted. So they brought them carefully because they feared the people lest they should be stoned. Now, when they brought them, they brought them right back before the council. And to be clear, this is exactly what God wanted. God wanted them right back before the council. God did not want them out fleeing on the hillsides or on horses riding out of town. God wanted them right before their accusers at this point of time. However, the high priest, he's really fighting against God here. And he can't control himself. He sees these guys come in. And he blurts out. This is the equivalent of a guy just seething, boiling over, red face, smoke coming out of the ears. He can't take it anymore. There they are. They're standing before him. And he stands up here and we see this. He says to them, did we not? Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Didn't we tell you to stop this? And look, look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now there are, if you're counting, there are three different accusations in these words. Three different accusations. Let's take them briefly one at a time. First of all, the priest says this. Didn't we tell you guys to knock it off? Didn't we tell you not to teach not to teach in the name of this Christ. Didn't we tell you to stop it? So in this accusation, the priests and the others, are they're confirming, hey, we told you guys not to do this, and you've gone right back to doing it. And what's embedded in that is the high priest who's used to people listening. I mean, he's the high priest, right? He's used to people listening, and here's got people in front of him, Jews, who are not listening. And they did exactly what he told them not to do, And from the standpoint of his pride and the like, he's angry. He's offended. He's offended that they did not obey. So then comes the second, the second accusation, which was this. He then says, all right, now look, you've been doing what I told you not to do, and look at the impact that it's had. I told you not to do it, you went and did it, and now the whole city, the whole city has been saturated with your doctrine. Thanks a lot. The whole city is now filled with your doctrine, with your teaching. Now, what should stand out to you in that statement, that accusation, is the second word, the word look. When the priest said, and look, he was saying, what you all are teaching, it's having a visible impact. If a stranger comes to town, he's going to see that things are different, things have changed, something's going on, he's going to see it. Why? Because the things you're teaching are having an effect. People aren't doing what they used to do. They're living in different ways. What you're saying is transforming the city, the culture, the people. He's saying this is visible. It's not just theological, and it's not academic. Sometimes in faith, doesn't that seem like the way it works? We all nod our head to propositional truth. We say, amen, 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 and we go out, and sometimes we don't live any differently. Well, in this particular case, every word that was coming from the apostles' lips was changing people, the hearts and minds of the people, to live in different ways. And the high priest is acknowledging that in his second accusation. Now, just as a side note, I think this is a good objective. 
to change the city in which you have been placed. You know, as a church, our desire is not simply to change the hearts of our own congregation, which have already been changed. Our objective is not simply to fill our pews. I think that's thinking too small. Rather, it's to fill the city. In other words, the gospel has changed us, and it's continuing to remake us and to sanctify us. However, by virtue of having been changed in times past, we should be seeking further change in the community in which we live. If our objective was just to fill our own pews, we're thinking too small. The impact that the gospel had in Jerusalem, and a place that was hostile, overtly hostile to it, was to radically transform the city in which it was being preached. Why can't that be true in Gulfport as much as anywhere else? You know, all my life, I've lived in towns and cities that had visible churches. All my life, I've lived in places that had churches, you know, on almost every other block, had the tall steeples or crosses or stained glass or the like. The visible presence of churches and even Bibles is something I'm accustomed to, I suspect you're accustomed to as well. But you know what? I long to live in a time, a city, a place that doesn't just have the hallmarks, the visible hallmarks of a faith, but in which that time, city, and place has been saturated with the gospel. Here in Gulfport, there's not an absence of churches. There's no absence of Bibles. So what's missing? What's missing? Well, I think sometimes we have a form of godliness while denying the power that we see in Acts 5 that we see in Acts 4, that we see throughout the whole New Testament. Sometimes I think we set our sights too small, our expectations are too lean. With that said, Paul in Romans 1.16, he says, you know what? He says, in the gospel, you have the power, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, to do that which right now might seem impossible to you. And that is to fill the city and change the city in which you now live. The gospel, Romans 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For the Jew first and for the Greek, meaning for everybody. Even the people you think would never come to it. The gospel is capable of reaching them. So what are we called to do? Share it. Speak it. Preach it. Teach it. That's it. There's other things as a church we can and should do. In our church, we have wonderful programs and activities. We really do, and they're awesome, and they're good, and they're God-glorifying. However, however, all of that would be nothing but white noise if it were not for this, if it were not for the gospel being saturated in our classes, in our ministries, in our Sunday school, in the pulpit and the like. The same should be true with our other interactions in the world around us. The gospel is the power of God and of salvation. You want to build a church? Start there. You want to save the lost? Start there. You want to grow the kingdom? Start there. If you were to look through the book of Acts, or really any of the epistles, You'd see that every time you see some outpouring of growth, or thousands were saved in a day, or something like that, it's always one-to-one correlation. It's always yoked to the faithful presentation of the Scriptures, to the faithful declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that seems intuitive, right? Yeah, of course it seems intuitive. However, in our day and age, what's intuitive is sometimes shuttled aside. What's obvious, what's clear, what's direct in Scripture is sometimes shuttled aside. Why? Because it's hard. Because it's hard. A modern view is that the gospel, yeah, the gospel is good and nice and sweet and wonderful and all that. But a lot of people in a lot of churches think that, well, it's, it's good to have the gospel, but it's insufficient. We need to add on to it. You know, it's Trojan horse of other things. Or we need to make it more contextualized and relevant. 
in order that modern ears might hear it. The gospel is the power. The gospel is the power. The gospel is the power. You ever start thinking of something else? Session, leadership, officers, WLT, if any of us ever start thinking that the church, that what we're doing here, will grow or thrive on the basis singularly of something else, we're dead wrong. The gospel alone is that which converts sinners and sanctifies them and multiplies them. And that multiplication is what the high priest saw, and that's what made them so anxious. That brings us to the third accusation the priest has in verse 28. He says to them, he says, all right, you haven't stopped, you're continuing to preach, you're preaching the doctrine, it's filling the city. And then he tells them an accusation I think came from his own sinful heart, just the deepest recess. He looks at him and he says, you know what? You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What did he mean there? Well, there's two probable meanings. One is the obvious one that, you know, if the city keeps being changed, if all these people start following after the Christ or this Jesus of Nazareth, if you all continue to grow in number, you're going to be a threat to us. Eventually, you're going to see us as complicit in the death of this Jesus and the persecution of his disciples, and you're going to bring this man's blood upon us. We're going to be overthrown or killed because you're going to grow in number. Now, that might have been his concern. But there also may have been a growing fear. And you see this later in chapter 5, if you read a little further. The priest may have a growing fear that what if, what if, Peter, what if you're right? What if the apostles are right? And at some level, I think they might have started to wonder if Peter and the apostles were right. I mean, miracles were going on. This is unquestioned. What if those miracles meant that Peter and the others were correct? Wouldn't that mean that the high priest and those who were standing with him were on the train tracks of divine retribution? This man's blood being brought upon us. Again, later in chapter 5, that's going to be more overtly discussed. Whatever the case, the priest recognized what they were doing was dangerous to them personally, to the priest and to others who stood with him. All right, let's look at verses 29 through 32. But Peter and the other apostles answered, and they said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who you murdered by hanging on a tree. That's a picture of the cross hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel. Listen to these words. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey him. If you're the high priest, these last words were more offensive than anything you'd heard before. Why? Why were they more offensive? Why would these words have been so hard to hear? Well, for starters, in verse 30, Peter called them murderers. Peter says to the high priest and the others, he's saying, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Murdering would be bad enough. To call the high priest and the others a murderer, that would be bad enough, right? Those are the sort of sins you don't walk away from. That would be bad. But that's not just what Peter said. Peter's saying, uh -uh. it's not just that you murdered Bob or Paul or Stu or Fran. It's not just that you did that. It's rather this, that God the Father raised up his son, Jesus Christ, the divine, only begotten son of God. And that's who you murdered. That's who you killed. Do you see this? Do you see why they would be angry at this rebuke, this incredible rebuke? And yet, even in the midst of that just horrific rebuke, there's something interesting in verse 31. Right after saying that, 
right after telling them that they did the most horrific thing you could possibly do, kill the Son of God, right after telling them you did this, the most horrific, terrible, very bad, no good, awful thing, right after you did this, look in verse 31. It said that the same one, the same Jesus, he gives repentance to Israel, which is including the priests and everyone, and forgiveness of sins. The arms of Christ were still open. As long as these men had breath in their lungs, they were still being called, called to some form of response. The arms of Christ were still open even to those who killed him. In fact, think of Jesus' dying words. What did he say? What did he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even in Christ's death, there was forgiveness extended to the very ones who killed him. Well, that's what Peter's saying here, reminding them of. He's saying, you did this. Dear heavens, on the scale of naughtiness, you did the utmost. You did the worst that could be done. And yet, and yet, there's still forgiveness. There is still an opportunity for repentance. And this is not Peter speaking for himself, but rather this is the message of Christ, even to his worst enemies. He would have them choose life. There's forgiveness for whatever has been done in times past. There's forgiveness for sins one might future commit. But they all hinge, all that forgiveness hinges on the recognition, profession of him as Lord and Savior. All right, let's wrap up this morning with a final observation. You know, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, he knew something about the power of the gospel. Spurgeon led a large congregation, and he didn't lead it primarily through programs and activities and the like, but he led it by opening up the book and preaching the word. Now, one day Spurgeon was asked a question about apologetics, which is defending the faith. And the question went something just like this. Spurgeon, how do you defend the faith in the eyes and ears of a world that is opposed to it? Now, those of you who know the story, do you remember what Spurgeon's response was? Well, Spurgeon, I like to think that he had a cigar when he said it. I like to think his beard was flowing. I like to think that he had a smile on his face. But I know not what he looked like. I know only what he said. And what he said is this. He says, it's not a matter of defending the gospel. I can no more defend the gospel than I can defend a lion. What do you do with a lion? You set it loose. It can defend itself. It doesn't need me take care of it. You set it loose. And he says, this is true for the gospel. Stop thinking it's weak. Stop thinking you need to make it hip or relevant or what have you, or you need to sneak it in a Trojan horse of other things. No! Spurgeon, like Paul, like Peter, like others, said this, take the good news, put it before the eyes and ears of fallen man, and let it do its own good work. It's capable of changing hearts irrespective of anything that you might look to add to it. The gospel doesn't need our defense. It just needs our preaching. The gospel doesn't need our defense. It just needs our preaching. The gospel doesn't need to be made hip or relevant. It just needs to be heard. We dare not ever lose sight of that, as many have. We don't need to worry about how to package the gospel. We don't need to worry about how to make it relevant to our enlightened society. We just need to preach it. Just let it out. Send it forth. It'll accomplish its own good work. With that said, I wonder, what would Gulfport be like if the gospel were let loose on our streets? Can't you help but wonder? Why should we have a small view thinking that it'll accomplish anything less 
wide-scale visible change like what we've seen in the book of Acts. The gospel is not toothless. It'll accomplish its own good work. Let's have a desire to preach. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's sermon as we've studied God's Word together. To receive notifications of our next episode, please subscribe to this podcast.